0: It's so beautiful. Make you feel good. It makes you feel good about life. It gives you a little bit of hope. And even when you think about Mr. Rogers, you know, the one thing I love about him and about that song is he didn't come out saying that you're my neighbor or that he was your neighbor. He said uh, it was an invitation. Would you be my neighbor? Later, when he was asked about it, he said, you know, really, it's an invitation to be close an invitation to be close. Sounds kind of cheesy, doesn't it, at first? I mean, uh, won't you be my neighbor? It it sounds kind of cheesy. But really, it was reflective of his worldview, of his faith. Uh, Fred McNeely Rogers was actually an ordained Presbyterian minister. Did you know that? And his ordination wasn't uh, to lead a church, but to lead gospel ministry on television and to show the love of Jesus to children and to families through this new medium at the time. And uh, he was a private and a quiet man. He hated the spotlight, but the rare times when he opened up, he he said that his philosophy of this neighborly love flowed ultimately from uh, his faith in Jesus Christ. It was an expression of who Jesus is and a proclamation of the gospel. And, and he explained the gospel and Jesus' love in a way, really just Jesus' love in a way that, that children could understand. My son, Charlie, still loves to watch Mr. Rogers and it's still on TV today. You know, uh, he was following Jesus' example, wasn't he? I mean, Jesus made it clear that we're to love and really to see everyone as our neighbor. Maybe you remember, we'll look at this again a little later, but there was an expert in the religious law who came to Jesus and uh, said, Jesus, what, what is it I'm supposed to do? Just so what Jesus said, what does the law of Moses say? And he said, well, I'm um, to love the Lord my God with all my heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus was like, right, you got it right. Perfect, good work. And then the guy asks back, okay, but who's my neighbor? who's my neighbor? <laughs> he, he didn't want to, to hear like everybody's my neighbor. He, he wanted to know uh, who do I have to love and who can I just avoid? And so Jesus did as he often would do. He told a story to illustrate a spiritual truth and really to show this guy where his thinking was all wrong. And so beginning in verse 30, Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan. You probably know that story. We'll read it a little later this morning. But where some religious Jews overlooked a man who was in in desperate need and the most likely of individuals comes along and rescues him and cares for him and even sacrifices for him to get well, binding up his wounds, meeting his needs. Well, I've mentioned multiple times this series, really, uh, we're wrapping it up today, but it was inspired by uh, a book uh, by Ed Stetzer called Christians in the Age of, outrage. And he talks about the example of Fred Rogers as well. And he writes this, he goes, in our day Rogers not only forced the public to consider the question first answered by Jesus of who is my neighbor, but he also steadfastly gave Jesus response. This is what made him a light opening doors into communities and traditions that today seem barred shut even to the slightest hint of the gospel. His viewers believed Rogers when, they said, when he said that they were his neighbors. He wasn't a great theologian. He was a children's television show host. But Rogers used his God-given gifts and opportunities to advance the kingdom of God. He helped us understand what it means to engage with others face to face. The subtle power behind Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and its unique question is that it moved neighbor from being a designative noun to an action-oriented verb. Mr. Rogers was not simply a neighbor, he was neighboring. He answered his question, won't you be my neighbor, by playing out what it looked like to neighbor in a way that was distilled and broken down for children to understand. Moving from noun to verb makes all the difference when we begin seeing neighbor not as a label, but as an action, Stutzer writes. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about the age of outrage we live in, and last week we talked about what it looks like to engage online, but the truth of the matter is that not much is really going to ever change until we also engage in real life, one-on-one, person-to-person, friend-to-friend. Uh, Jesus didn't come during a time where he could, you know, post a quip on Facebook or, you know, fire off a video message on YouTube. He didn't even come at a time where he could mail a letter to someone, really, at a time where if he was to engage with somebody, he had to go out and meet them. He had to go see them. He had to be with them. And uh, it's from that viewpoint then that he modeled community and close friendship and the way that we ought to engage with the world. You know, Jesus came as God in the flesh, right? Almighty God who put on flesh and as uh, if you have a paraphrase of the Bible called the message, Eugene Peterson paraphrase that out of the Greek and Hebrew as a pastor. And he translates uh, John one that Jesus uh, put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. He moved into the neighborhood. And that's really what he he did. And in fact, uh, the God of the universe put on flesh and where did he show up? But in a small town, he grew up in a small town of Nazareth, a couple hundred people He would end up making his ministry headquarters in another small town called Capernaum. But from this small town, our big God, Jesus, changed the world and all of history. Friends, we all live in small towns, right? If you're here with us today, you live in a small town, let's face it. But we worship a big God who does incredible things from small places. And so that's what we're trusting uh, him to do. And as we wrap up this series today, we're gonna talk about that and how God does big things on a small scale. So let me pray and then we're gonna jump in. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your grace to us through him and your goodness and uh, your example. Father, uh, I pray for each of us and for myself, would you help us to love our neighbor like Jesus loved us? To, to engage, to, to come into the neighborhood, to, to, uh, to put feet and, and hands to the love that you offer. And uh, would you challenge us with that today? That we wouldn't uh, maybe run to the default of saying, eh, really, who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love? But we would recognize that we're to love everybody always and help us by the power of your spirit to do that. It's the only chance we have. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Teach us now. Amen. Well, Jesus accomplished much by being a good neighbor in in, in small towns. In fact, do you know the Father sent him almost exclusively to small places? The, The largest place we're aware of Jesus visiting was Jerusalem. And those occasions were relatively rare, only a couple times a year. The vast, vast, vast majority of the time, Jesus' ministry took place in small towns. In fact, if Jesus had walked northern Indiana and had ever visited Milford or Syracuse or New Paris or Cromwell or Webster, uh, they would have been among the largest towns that he ever visited. Nazareth, I mentioned, was a couple hundred people where he grew up. Capernaum, where he set up kind of his uh, ministry headquarters in a sense, was a town of about 1,500 And Capernaum was on uh, the edge of the Sea of Galilee and small towns. Big God in small towns. He did extraordinary things in very ordinary places. Well, if you remember from our first week in this series, we talked about the fact that we've been sent by a king with a message to a foreign land. And and we need to see that right away this morning that uh, we've been sent. You and I, we've been sent. We have been. You know, the Father sent Jesus into small towns. He has sent you and I in the same way. Just like Jesus was sent by the Father, we're sent by Jesus. You're like, really, Josh, where'd you get that from? Well, Jesus said it. John chapter 20, some of his last words to his disciples, he says, peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, so even I am sending you. Jesus said, I'm sending you. He prayed that in John 17 too, the night before he was crucified. And he prayed it not only for his disciples, but any who would believe after him, after them, because of them, which would include all of us, were sent. I wonder, uh, you're like, I'm, I'm sent. Have you ever considered you live, uh, we all live in a place that um, not a lot of people are interested in visiting. Not the most interesting or uh, urban or hip place in the world. I mean, apart uh, from the lake, uh, there's really not a whole lot to do or see here. And it can feel sometimes, and in many ways, like a, a rather insignificant place. Do you ever sense that? Do you ever feel that way? Yet God has sent you here. He sent me here. And he didn't make a mistake in that. And according to his agenda, it's not an insignificant place. In fact, uh, God chose where everyone would live and the times and seasons with which they would live, in which they would live, excuse me. Paul uh, was ministering uh, at a place called Mars Hill, the Oropagus the one time, and he makes this comment in Acts chapter 17. <clears throat> He's preaching, he said, and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods, so how long they're going to live, and boundaries of their dwelling places, where they're going to live. God determined from eternity past that you and I would live in a small town, that we'd be in a small community. And that's all by his sovereignty. And that's great, great news and good news because God has a plan and he's, designed that. Now, your, your situation may change over time, and that's okay. You may move somewhere else. God may lead you somewhere else. That's, there's no harm in that. That's great. Seasons change. But for this season, we're here. We're here. And, and God didn't make a mistake. He allotted... Uh, for every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He knew exactly where he would, you would live. And just as the father sent Jesus into small towns, guess what? He sent us, friends, into small towns. In fact, a very specific place. Uh, He sent Jesus to a small town of a couple hundred called Nazareth, where he grew up, and later he would spend time set up his ministry base in Capernaum. I mentioned that already, a small town of about 1,500 on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Well, the lake was large as lakes go, really the Lake of Galilee, and the whole region around it, because it was so large, became known as the region of Galilee. And around Galilee, there were a number of other small towns like Tiberias and Bethsaida and this whole region is known as the area of Galilee, all these small towns around the big lake. Ever, that sound familiar? Uh, you and I, we all live in kind of small towns, maybe Milford, maybe Syracuse, maybe Webster, maybe Cromwell, maybe fill in the blank, maybe down around Dewar. Generally speaking, there's a giant lake in the middle of this area called Wawasee, not Galilee, but Wawasee. And the whole area tends to be known because of that lake and kind of the area, the even the school of Wall It's kind of curious, isn't it? And we can be encouraged that, that Jesus started off his ministry and uh, did most of his ministry in a very small area, not unlike our own. <clears throat> and you're sent to this specific place. You and I are. But not just a place, because it's not just the boundaries, it's also the people who live within those boundaries. You've been sent to specific people. You have been. Uh, who have you been sent to as an individual? Well, how about uh, your family? Maybe your immediate family. You know them better than anybody else. Your extended family, your very extended, distant relatives. Maybe you're going to see some of them next or this week at Thanksgiving. Maybe you won't because of COVID. Maybe it'll be stressful no matter what, whether you see them or not, because it's family, and it's Thanksgiving. That's how it goes. You've been sent to them, though. You've been sent to a specific people. How about your neighborhood? That place where you live, your part of town, your subdivision, the two or three, four, five, six houses around you. Maybe you're uh, in the country, you're not in town, and so maybe it's that whole section around you. You're sent to those specific people as well. Not just a place, but a people. How about your workplace, your company, your uh, your division, your work group, your immediate co workers, the people on the line next to you, the people in the office down the hall, you have uniquely been sent to them. You've been sent because our God is a sending God. And just like Jesus was sent into a small town among people uh, that he would interact with, so are you and I. And in fact, you're sent to different people than I'm sent to because we each have different interactions. And that's all by God's design. Because you and I are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We're sent by the king. We're sent by him to specific places and specific people. Okay, I'm sent to him, Josh. Great. Big deal. Now what? Well, you're sent to love them. You're not just sent to them, you're sent to love them. You know, the the great command uh, we we were reading earlier uh, from Luke chapter 10 an expert in the religious law, and he asked, what do I need to do? He said, what does Moses say? How do you read it? The the man answered the question right. Look at this. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and and love your neighbor as yourself. That's exactly how Jesus has been answering this question of, of what should we do? What's the most important? And Jesus said, right, do this and you'll live. But then the man wanted to justify his actions and Yes. Well, okay. Well, who's my neighbor? <laughs> Who do I really have to love? Because friends, we're sent, and we're sent to love people. But it's really, it's really hard to love everyone. Would you agree? It can be incredibly hard, and that's because love is costly. And so, to this man, Jesus uh, then tells the parable of the good Samaritan. And so, uh, let's read through this and unpack it a little bit. Jesus replied. He said. Um, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now Jerusalem was uh, the top of, the, uh, of a mountain and uh, it would have been a long descent down into the Judean wilderness and it was, uh, it was rough, it was a treacherous journey, it was dry and arid and um, uh, the way to Jericho and uh, parts of the road even were almost like sheer cliffs that you could uh, easily fall off of and if you did fall, you'd be in great danger and, and get hurt. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, I mean, if you're hearing this in Jesus' day, you're going, oh yeah, I know that road. I know that corner. I know how dangerous it is. Oh man, that's awful. I know exactly that spot. And Jesus said, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. All right, yes, somebody who's going to rescue this guy, right? Surely the priest is going to help this man who's in danger, and, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, at times, uh, the path from Jerusalem to Jericho is very narrow. Um, uh, by some accounts, I've seen even as narrow as maybe one of these steps on the stage. So if the man is in a spot like that where he's fallen and he's half dead and the priest comes along and, and goes to the other side of the road, it's not like he looked to the other side and just didn't see him there's a good chance that he was very close to him and just kind of stepped around him very carefully and then kept on his way. He passed by on the other side. Well, maybe somebody else will come along. So likewise, a Levite, Jesus says, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. The Levite should have helped him too. Why aren't these upstanding religious guys. Why aren't they helping this man? They ought to. That's who they are, right? But Jesus is a Samaritan. Now, as soon as they would have heard this, they likely would have thought, oh boy, here we go. What's the Samaritan going to do? He, they're gonna, he's going to kick him down the side of the hill, isn't he? Because the Samaritans were just viewed as Trash. You didn't want to associate with them. And it goes back in time to, to a place where uh, some, uh, some of the Jewish people uh, intermarried with people of other faiths. And uh, this uh, resulted in a group of people that are known now as the Samaritans in a land called Samaria, which is part of, of Israel. And uh, they were just looked upon as outcasts among the Jewish people. And in fact, when, when Jews would go from southern Israel to northern Israel, uh, they would rarely go through Samaria, but they would, unless they absolutely had to, they would go out and around Samaria so as not to associate with these people in any way, shape, or form. So surely, I mean, the Samaritan, come on, he's not going to help. But as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The Samaritan comes along and he sees the guy on the side of the road who's who's had a bad accident, he's hurting, he he pulls out his first aid kit, binds him up, puts him in his car, takes him to the hospital to get cared for. I mean, that's what's happening. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. That would have been two full days wages. Can you imagine? He doesn't know this guy. And not only did he pay the two full days wages to to kind of be this guy's uh, private health insurer, he also says, hey, uh, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. That's incredible, isn't it? It's amazing. Which of these three, Jesus asked, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Well, the man said, well, the the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yeah, you go, do likewise. To the man who says, who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love? Jesus says, let's go show mercy. doesn't matter who it is. Go do like the Samaritan did. Show mercy, love people, show grace. Loving people is costly. That's why it's so hard. It is costly. It can cost you financially. It can cost you in your reputation. It can cost your time. It's not easy. And it means a lot of times it can mean giving up my own rights and my own preferences or my own opinions about something to care for someone else and to love them. That's what grace and mercy are, giving to people what they don't deserve and, or not giving to them what they do deserve. Two sides of the same coin. Well, we're sent to love people and sometimes though to love somebody, you might go, oh, I, I could write a check. I can do that, that's easy. I can pack a shoebox, send it overseas, that's a great thing. But you know what can be harder? is the next part of love where you actually, not only are you sent to love them, but invite them. Invite them, engage with them, enter into friendship with them, invite them. I mean, hey, when you were little, can you remember times uh, maybe at school where uh, your friend or somebody you knew came to school with a little bag full of invitations to their birthday party and they'd hand them out to people in the class and, man, you were really excited if you got that invitation, right? And then if you didn't get that invitation you were equally disappointed and kind of heartbroken. People love to be invited into relationship, into friendship. I mean, even from the time we're young, sleepover, a birthday party. And and what we're talking about when we say uh, to love people and invite them is to invite them to friendship. Because love can there's some things we can do to show love to people that we can still keep our distance in a big way. But it also, we need to invite them, invite them to friendship. Well, uh, what does it look like to invite someone to friendship? Well, it could look like a lot of different things, but um, let's look at uh, 1 Peter chapter four. We're gonna be in 1 Peter uh, after the new year, shortly after the new year anyway. And look what Peter writes in chapter four, verse eight. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. So you're sent to love one another, love people, since love covers a multitude of sins. We're sent to love others, and it begins in the church. It begins by loving one another. It's going to be really hard to love anybody outside these walls if we can't love each other or the people in your life group, right? I mean, we're the easy people. It's easy to love people you know and that you care about. And let me encourage you. You guys do a great job at this. We can always grow in this and do better and keep our eyes out, especially for those who are new but you do a good job at loving one another. And uh, I hear of that often. But Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins and, and show hospitality to one another. I don't like this next part though. Without grumbling. Without grumbling. I could do that until you had to throw the don't grumble about it in there. Because under my breath, maybe I do grumble a little bit. You ever feel that way? You ever do that? Inside, show hospitality to one another. Well, let's, let's just unpack that first. What's hospitality? Uh, hospitality uh, can be defined in, in different ways, but the hospitality that we see, that word in Scripture, is referring to something pretty specific, And I'm going to read a quote to you here. It's actually from, uh, I came across this quote, a guy named Joshua Jip, and I I recognized the name and I realized uh, this week, I I played baseball with this guy in high school. Our high school has shared athletics and uh, now he's a professor at Trinity. I had had no idea. And uh, anyway, here's what he writes. So he says, hospitality is the act or process whereby the identity of the stranger is transformed into that of guest. While hospitality often uses the basic necessities of life, such as the protection of one's home and the offer of food and drink and conversation and clothing, the primary impulse of hospitality is this. I think this is really good to create a safe and welcoming place where a stranger can be converted into a friend. Where a stranger can be converted into a friend. You know, it's easy for us to love one another and it's good and we do, but how are you doing it at loving those who are strangers? And not only that, but showing them hospitality so that that stranger could become a friend. That's biblical hospitality. It is. I mean, that happens in in your home, that happens in your neighborhood, that happens in the commons on a Sunday morning. How are you doing it showing hospitality to a stranger? That's what we're called to do. We're sent to love people and invite them. That's that hospitality piece. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, the writer of Hebrews says, says, let brotherly love continue. So love one another, but don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained, entertained angels unaware. It's easy to love people who are familiar to us, but how about those who aren't? And uh, just by way of application, let me let me give you an idea here. Um, maybe you, you would think about your neighborhood. Who are the houses around you? Can you picture those families? Do you know their names? Who's next door, either direction? Maybe there's somebody behind. Maybe across the street. Maybe you uh, live out in the country somewhere, and so maybe you're thinking in terms of maybe a section and uh, miles around you. And, and who are who are some of your neighbors? Do you know them? Maybe this week you would take some time and it's in the life group questions just to map that out physically and write their names down and remember who they are and if you don't know who they are, get to know who they are and you can begin to pray to the Lord then about that for an opportunity to get to know them, to, to love them, to engage with them and then maybe, who knows, maybe even the opportunity to invite them into friendship with you, to be a friend to them. That's hospitality, to make the stranger friend and uh, you know I give my wife a lot of credit for this uh, a couple of years ago we started a thing I told you about it before called taco Tuesday and on Tuesday nights it hasn't happened now since COVID so we're waiting for that to lift and we can start doing it again but every Tuesday night uh, 515 I believe it was uh, we cooked up a bunch of taco meat and we invited our neighbors and they came over they bring um, uh, some brought maybe bring a bag of lettuce or a thing of salsa or a bag of cheese Whatever toppings show up, that's what's going on the tacos tonight, and it was just a great opportunity to get to know some of them. And uh, many, uh, there's a handful of you who are part of our church family. You've been there, you live in my neighborhood, and it's been a great. What what could you do though? First, you got to know who they are. Pray about that. Uh, God has sent you there, so He would delight to answer that prayer to help you know who they are, and then uh, engage with them and invite them to friendship and relationship. And you can do this by serving them. Uh, Verse 10, Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Now he's talking about within the church, but that works outside of the church too. How are you serving your neighbors in your neighborhood? And maybe you're like, I know all my neighbors, Josh. My brother lives over here, and my sister over here, and my mom across the street. I know them all, know them well. Well, how about your coworkers? What about at work? Who are the people in the line next to you or in the office down the hall? Maybe you'd map that out instead of your neighborhood and pray again for an opportunity to love and engage and invite them to friendship, to serve them, using your gifts to serve them according to God's varied graces. I should also say too, if, uh, if you're part of our church family, man, I'm so glad you're here, but let me encourage you, uh, this place becomes more and more like a family once you start serving, once you use your gifts and get plugged in and serve somewhere, kids ministry, student ministry, worship team, tech team, whatever that is, greeting, get plugged in and serve. I kind of joke, you know, true fellowship is defined as a bunch of fellows in the same ship, rowing in the same direction, going towards a common cause. That's where that camaraderie and that, that, that health and that family grows. But he says, so whoever speaks, do as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What are you good at? How are you serving? How are you serving your neighbor, your co-workers, your family? See... That's a great way to invite them to friendship because you're sent to love them and invite them. Ultimately, hopefully, not just a friendship, but to follow Jesus with us. But ultimately, hopefully, to follow Jesus. And guess what? Not everybody's going to respond to that invitation. That's okay. We still love them. Still try to serve. Still care. But eventually, hopefully, because that is the greatest thing, we want to invite them to experience that, to follow Jesus with us. Not alone, not in a vacuum, but but with us. So, you know, today we we wrap up this series, Life in the Age of Outrage. And maybe it'd just be good for us just to review a little bit of where we've been. We we talked about it right out of the gate that we're sent by a king with a message to a foreign land. You are sent, and we talked about it again today, kind of bookends to the whole thing. You are sent by the king to love people, invite them to follow Jesus with you. We saw that in this age of outrage, disgust towards people halts all engagement with them. It keeps us from loving them, from loving people. Listen, friends, your neighbors long to be loved. Maybe the ways that there's some quirks there or ways that they might be harsh or even some of your family members. The reality of the matter is deep down, they long to be loved by the creator of the universe. They long to be loved by you, just like you and I are loved. And you're the one sent to show that love to them. And even, in that, even with, with things we might be disgusted about, if we become disgusted with people, it becomes really hard to love them. We did talk about the fact there are things we must be angry about, but, but always in the same way that God gets angry, always in a measured way, always uh, carefully, always slow to anger because we represent his kingdom and that he's calling us to engage uh, to do what Jesus commands online. We talked about online last week, and now today, let me just encourage you, go make that list. Who are your neighbors? Engage them one-on-one and see what uh, your big God might do in your small town because of your small action of friendship. You never know. You never know. And we live in a world that, that needs the church, not only our church, but every Bible-believing church and gospel-preaching church in our community, in our state, in our, in our state, in our nation. Uh, It needs the gospel and, and friendship with God more than anything else. It's the only cure to the outrage and division and strife around us. And we're the ones sent with the message. Let me pray.